Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Tim Steckel, professor at the University of Niigata Prefecture. Tim, welcome to Lost in Citations. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here today. In our pre-recording meeting, I saw you had a bike behind you. Are you doing that to show off or you actually get on that thing? <laughs> no, I, um, I ride to work most days. Nice. Are you still going into work? You mean during the summer break? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably three or four days a week. Is that because you work better in your office? Uh, yes. Yeah. Nice. I, I think if I had my own office, I'd be more inclined to do that. But with the whole COVID thing, and I, I, I liked, I really liked the shared office we have at uh, Q Sandai before COVID. Um, now I've got, I've got both my shots. I don't know about you, but you seem to have your own office so that I think I could get a lot more work done if I had my own office. Maybe that's something to aspire to. Have you, have you always had your own office? No, I haven't. Um, and I agree. It's, it's really, really a blessing to, to have the space. It looked very quiet and serene. Do you have a nice view to what, what floor are you on? I'm on the fourth floor and I have a decent enough view of the mountains outside of Niigata city. Um, so yeah, it's good. Where is Niigata? I'm trying to think Niigata, if I've ever been there. Niigata is on the Japan seaside. Okay. Of, so that side of Japan. And it's um, up north, just a little, maybe two prefectures or three prefectures below Hokkaido. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. So the paper we're going to talk about today is Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of written receptive vocabulary knowledge. And this was published in Studies in Second Language Acquisition. Now, before we get into your background and some of the characters that are gonna pop up on this episode and in subsequent episodes, can you talk a little bit about this journal, Studies in Second Language Acquisition? Because a lot of the action that we're gonna be discussing is centered on this journal. So tell me a little <laughs> bit about the journal um, as much as you know, and, and why is this conversation happening in the journal at the moment? Well, Jonathan, you hit me with a pretty funny question because um, anyone who works with me, who writes and does research with me, knows that I probably, less than anyone I work with, know which journals are impact. And I, this is something that's not really on my radar. <laughs> um, so it's a funny question, but um, I have learned... Um, because of this paper, that SSLA is one of the three or four top journals in the field. So it's it's um, if you get something published there, it'll get read. So that's good. And um, the state of the scholarship article, the column that they run, is a column where um, researchers can summarize some aspect of the field and sort of highlight the issues that are most important in that aspect of the field today. So that's what this article has tried to do. And your, uh, your co-authors are Stuart McLean and sorry, sorry. Yeah. Stuart McLean. Well, for second, second author is, uh, Paul nation and third is, uh, Stuart McLean. Actually, Stuart is second. Paul is third. Oh, okay. So I was right the first time. Okay. So Stuart McLean is also going to be coming on the show. Uh, in a couple weeks. Can we talk a little bit about Paul Nation? Because as I was reading this article, um, you know, you're referencing 
Paul Nation, 1983. I mean, I, I, I've heard the name. Again, I'm not so familiar with the vocabulary. Is he one of the main figures in the field? And, and if so, is this a thrill to, to write with someone like this? Uh, yes and yes. Um, Paul Nation is one of the two or three sort of founding fathers of the vocabulary area of our field. Um, and um, as you as you said, he's gone. You know, he's been publishing since the 1980s, maybe even earlier. So yeah, when I had the chance to work on a paper with Paul, I was thrilled, and um, I still am. So yeah. So how did it all come about? Well, maybe we'll take a step backwards. That's, I'd like I'd like to hear about people's backgrounds. So can you talk a little bit about your academic journey and and you know how that brought you to Japan and. And whether you you know you stayed in Japan the whole time or you kind of went back and forth, where where, where did your academic journey start? Sure, um, I am. Are you still there? My screen just went out. Are you still there? Yep, I hear you. Okay, I um, I am about a half a generation older than most of the people I research with, hmm. and so my journey is um, I think a little different than a lot of those folks. Um, I first came to Japan in 1991. Hmm. And that was after uh, I completed my, my BA in Spanish and Humanities at the University of Northern Iowa. And at that time, I was interested in uh, mostly because of my, my major in Spanish and my love of, I, I did a study abroad when I was an undergraduate student. And because of that experience, I was really interested in living and working overseas. Mm. And so I thought, I, I was trying to figure out what would be a, a good way of sort of supporting myself while doing that. And I came across teaching English as a second language as a way of doing that. I thought I might go to Costa Rica or Mexico or something like that after I finished. Mm. So I pursued the master's degree in TESOL. And when I finished in, in 1991, I looked for work and I, the place I found work was Japan. Mm. So I came here um, for just about five years, I lived in Kobe, and I was teaching there. 1995, um, a little bit after the earthquake, I returned to the United States, and I started an EDD program, again, at the University of Northern Iowa, and I was working on that for several years, and um, a job opportunity came up to teach at Kansai Gaidai in Japan in 2000, mm. and I took that job, left the EDD program, and never returned to it. So that I left that incomplete. And I uh, came to, to Japan in 2000 thinking I'd be here for a year or two. And, well, I, I'm still here today like a lot of people sort of end up doing. What was it like in the 90s teaching in Japan? Was the, was the money better? Were there a lot less foreigners? Those are the two things that kind of popped to my head that I would assume. Um. There were certainly more opportunities for making easy money because it was just after the bubble. There was still a lot of extra sort of money around in society. So you could you could pick up like private lessons and get 5,000 yen an hour without any problem. I didn't do much of that, but a lot of people I knew did. Mm -hmm. And to your second question about the foreigners, it's hard for me to say because I lived in Kobe, which is really an international community. Mm. So actually... I ran into more foreigners there then than I have anywhere since. Oh, interesting. So Spanish. So you, you said you did a study abroad. Where, where did you do study abroad? I did study abroad in Colima, Mexico. Wow. How was that? 
it was it was great. I mean, it was. Um, it, it, I, I'd like to say it was life changing at the time. It was, but you know, everything sort of gets all takes on less significance over time. But it was wonderful. Um, it, it opened my eyes. You know, I, I'm I'm from Iowa. Until I went to Mexico at the age of whatever that was, 20, I had never seen mountains in my life. I had never seen the ocean in my life. So that's how sort of isolated my life was up to that point. So it was eye-opening. Was it a big culture shock to go from somewhere like Spain uh, or a Spanish-speaking place like Mexico and going to Japan? Because, you know, in my travels, you know, I haven't been to so many places, but wow, Japan is so different from every other place I'd ever, ever been to. And, you know, I, I just imagining, you know, like Mexico or Greece or, or Spain and then going to, I mean, even like the language and the way that people, you know, move their arms and, you know, the way they enunciate and where, you know, you know, proxemics, all these, all the, all these things. Was it, was it kind of strange to, to go from one end of the spectrum to the other? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, in my own experience, I experienced culture shock much more in Mexico hmm. than, I, than I ever did here. And I think um, two reasons for that are Japanese society, I feel like, is actually not that different from American society. It's really westernized. Hmm. And the second reason is probably, like I said before, in my first years here, I was surrounded by foreigners. So yeah. I, had that, I had that sort of cushion so, I mean, back then, I mean, because because when I came to Japan or when I started, you know, traveling, Skype was kind of my best friend. And I, I've used Skype for many, many years. I, I think it must have been hard back then. You know, did you call your friends back home? I mean, did you get homesick? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I called sometimes, but calls at that when I first came were like, like a dollar a minute, basically. Mm. So you, you couldn't call long. So, I mean, I still wrote a lot of letters, you know, letters that were sent to the post office. Because wasn't that the, back in the in the day, I'm trying to remember, I think when I was a, was a kid, you know, we used to have pen pals. And I think that was like a thing with like people from Japan. Yeah, could you know, be. Like people used to write letters back and forth. I, I remember when I was a kid, the first foreigner I ever met I think I was in Virginia Beach and I met this 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 kid. He was, I guess, for whatever reason, his family was traveling to Virginia Beach from Quebec. And that's the first time I ever heard someone speak a, a different language. And it was so cool because he had an accent and, and, and he could speak English too. And I, I couldn't speak French. And we started, you know, writing letters to each other. So I remember that that, that was kind of that was kind of a thing back in the day. Right. And, yeah, that's really cool. And and nostalgia's funny, right? Because when I think about it now, I think, oh, that's so cool, and we're missing out in technology. But then on the other hand, I think I can't survive without Skype. Like I have to, I have to talk to my friends and family. Like I have to see their face. So it's a completely it, different world. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. Um, all right, so let's jump into the paper a bit. So again, the paper we're talking about today is limitations of size and levels tests of written receptive vocabulary knowledge. So how did you? turn your focus into vocabulary? Oh, yeah, good question. Um, well, I think in my own teaching, before I really became interested in research, I, I did 
kind of focus on and prioritize vocabulary. It was something I considered important. Mm. And um, when, so actually, yeah, when I came, let me just think about this for a minute. So in 2010, I started a new job at Miyazaki International College. And at that job, I met also a, a guy who was new there at the time, um, Phil Bennett. Mm-hmm. And Phil is is um, a vocabulary researcher now, and um, a member a member of the Jalt Vocab Sig. We talked about that a little bit before the show started today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, Phil and I know each other very well. We're good friends. But at the time in 2010, um, when I went to MIC, Phil sort of taking stock of the entire curriculum at MIC and sort of um, what was needed and and, uh, sort of how basically Phil thought, um, okay, let me step back for a minute. MIC has a curriculum Mm -hmm. in which the third and fourth years um, students do all of their studies in English. It's an English medium curriculum. And so during the first two years of that curriculum, it's, they, they take um, heavily English centric classwork to prepare them for the third and fourth year. Mm-hmm. And so when we got there, Phil sort of looked at all that and he said, I think because Phil's background is vocabulary, he says, well, we really need to have some idea of what these students know and don't know in terms of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so now my understanding of what, what Phil sort of did before I started working with him is I think he looked at existing vocabulary tests, like the vocabulary size test, vocabulary levels test. Mm-hmm. And he realized that while these instruments might be good for certain purposes, they were lacking for what we needed at MIC. And so he wanted to develop a test. Mm. And, um, and so he sent out a message to all the English teachers at MIC and said, this is what I'm doing. Would anybody be willing to help with this? In fact, I think he already developed part of the test and he just wanted someone to sort of proofread test items. Mm. And I think I'm the only one who responded. <laughs> and really, it all kind of fortune, started from the- fortune favors the bold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of all started from there. Um, <laughs> Phil um, ha- had and has really high standards, and so he wanted to make a really good test. And so, in the process of developing this test, we thought, you know, we we could probably you know, write something up and 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 publish this, because we, in the end, we ended up um, basing the test on the new general service list. Mm-hmm. which is the new general service list is a vocabulary list that was developed by another person in Japan. Well, Charlie Brown and his two colleagues, Brent Culligan and I can't remember the name of the, of the third author of that list, but anyway, um, the NGSL was developed in Japan. And so having a test that could assess knowledge of that list was of value. So we, we communicated with Charlie and, and he was very happy to sort of, you know, work with us on that. So anyway, to, to get to, to cut to the chase, um, it was through this work with Phil that I started um, beginning doing research in vocabulary. Phil introduced me to the to the vocab SIG of JALT, the special interest group, and kind of from there it just it snowballed. Now this general, all right. So the new general service list test that now you referenced that in the paper we're talking about today. Steckel and Bennett, 2015. Is that what you're talking? So that from 2010 to 2015 was that the main culmination of you revising and publishing that test? You and you and you and Bennett. Right. So 
Phil and I did publish a paper in 2015 on the new general service list test that introduced a monolingual version of the test. And also, um, I think it was 2018, we did a lot of work with Tomoko Ishii um, on a Japanese-English bilingual version of the test. Hmm. So that is the, the test prompts were in English, and the four answer choices for each item were in Japanese. All right. So the, voca- the vocab sig, one of the more militant wings of JALT. We should get into that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, I just write random things, see if I can like fit it into an academic conversation. Um, but yeah, uh, joking aside. So Jeff and Stuart McLean, these are some of the characters that that, that are going to be coming about on, on, on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. Can you talk about how you ended up uh, meeting them and got involved in uh, publishing with them? Yeah, my earliest memory of... Jeff was um, so I uh, probably around 2011 or 12 Jeff asked me and Phil if we'd be interested in doing a presentation at um, the vocab sigs annual um, conference I what's it called symposium mm-hmm. and um, so through that we got to know Jeff um, and then once I went to the symposium and presented and started talking with the people there, I got to know Stuart as well. Stuart McLean looks way too good looking to be publishing academic papers. <laughs> just from just from his headshot alone. Um, it's, it seems like he's in the wrong field. Has he dabbled in acting or modeling or anything? Is, or is that just a fake picture? Actually, well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a fake picture, but, but Stuart has a background in forensic something or another ask him about it when you interview him it's it's um it's it's shockingly different from the field that he's working in now he he has a doctorate in another area that's totally different from what we do yeah so uh the the timeline for the people listening now is so chris chris and i and we have uh contributing interviews we 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 take turns so uh you know, Tim's episode is going to come out, and then in two weeks, Jeff's episode is going to come out, and then in two weeks, uh, Stuart Stewart's episode is going to come out. So we're, we're we're really leaning into the the vocab people the in the months of August and September. So hope hope the vocab hope hope the vocab uh, uh, community is going to enjoy these these episodes. I have to say, um, you know, you know, talking to you today, and of course, I I I'm a big fan of Jeff. I, I've never met Stuart before. When you meet certain people, they can guide you to be interested in a subject that you might not be interested in. So, for example, vocabulary, I'm interested on the periphery. Um, you know, so, for example, I, I'm interested in, you know, the word grouping principle that you talked about. Like, I, I, I teach that a lot. And it's interesting in, in the way you frame it in this test. That's sort of the way to sort of cheat the test. You know, I realize now it's like I'm teaching my students how to cheat on the test. Not not cheat, but to trick the test. You know, that's always been my thing, like teaching uh, the word family. I always thought that if you could take a word and spread it out as far as you can take it with, you know, with the antonyms and, and every part of speech, it's just such a, a valuable skill. So, yeah, you know, I've been doing that for years. But then coming from your perspective as someone who's trying to make a precise test, that's actually something that you have to be be careful of. Right. So it, it, it's interesting when I when I meet now, I'm much more interested in vocabulary just by talking to to you and, and, and to Jeff, 
Um, and I actually recently I've been citing, I actually just came out uh, with a paper. I think it's on the website now. Um, and I, it was my approach to how to teach reading. And I was citing Jeff's paper, but you know, the, the paper, you might've been on that paper, but the bootstrapping approach, a paper that I would have never, I would have never have read, but it's interesting now that I'm aware of this stuff and you can like cite it and back up some of your, your claims for, for other practices. So I hope people are enjoying these episodes for, for the very reason that I, that I mentioned that, uh, it's good to kind of go outside of your field. Like even at the JALT conference, I don't think I ever sat in on like a vocab sig. And I think people tend to do that. They'll go to like a certain conference and they'll just sort of, you know, go with their group, which makes sense because you haven't seen the people in a long time and you're publishing with them. But I think a podcast like this is a good chance for people to sort of like experience some from some cross pollination. I mean, are you, are you the type of person that you, you kind of stick to your own your own clan or do you like to sort of, you know, pick up things from other fields as well? I tend to stick to my own and just to dabble a little bit in other areas. <laughs> it's it's actually, um, I'm not doing it right now, but I used to um, review for the post-conference proceedings. Mm -hmm. And that that's really nice because it forces me to sort of get out of my own area a little bit. Mm. But but yeah, I tend to, to read and, you know, attend presentations that are more or less my area. All right, so let's set the scene a bit for this paper. So again, the paper we're talking about today is Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge. And then Stuart Webb, um, maybe can you, do you know, can you set the scene who Stuart Webb is? Stuart Webb is, okay, a little while ago we talked about how Paul Nation is one of the sort of fathers of our field. Mm -hmm. Paul Nation, Norbert Schmidt. Paul Mira, probably a few others, Batia Lafayre. Um, Stuart Webb might be considered one of the bigger names of sort of a second generation of researchers. Okay, so Stuart, Re Stuart Webb wrote a uh, sort of rebuttal or a commentary to the paper that we're talking about today. And it was also published in Studies in Second Language Acquisition. And then the paper I'm going to talk about with Jeff is also in studies in second language acquisition, which is Jeff and yours, Stuart McLean, Paul Nation, and Jeffrey Pinchbeck, your reply to Webb. So this this is the thread that I, I kind of want to uh, draw attention to, that people can can follow the thread. There, there's sort of a method to the madness. Again, I'll go over it, I'll go over it one more time. You publish this paper with Stuart McLean and Paul Nation. And then Stuart Webb, who you said is, is sort of one of the pillars of the vocab community, wrote sort of a reply to your paper. And then um, Jeff and yourself and Stuart McLean and Paul Nation and Pinchbeck wrote a, a reply to Webb, which is great. It's something like this, uh, it I always prick my ears up. I think I mentioned in the, the pre-recording meeting, the only th sort of... I mean, I'm going to call it a fight just to make it a, a drama. It's not a fight. It's just a discussion. But the only sort of fight that happened in my field was between uh, McIntyre and Gardner. If people want to listen to a little bit of that, they can go back and listen to Citation 51. McIntyre and Gardner versus Sparks and Ganshaw, where Sparks and Ganshaw were saying, oh, language, language learning anxiety doesn't affect, doesn't affect anything. It's, it's all about how, well you, how good you are in, a, in your first language. And this was a back and forth that was going on in the 90s in the, in the modern language journal, uh, all throughout the 90s, and early 2000s. And then it just sort of like stopped. 
there was no like resolution. It wasn't, it was just kind of, eh, we're going to stop. And I, I, I look back on that time and again, I, I've read all those papers and I, you know, I've read all the papers, I don't know, all the papers I need to read. And I always look back at that era, not just because the nineties had great music, but uh, I always think that's kind of a cool era when, when you have this sort of back and forth in the modern language journal, you know, people are going back. So I think discussions, not only are they really fun for other people to read about and think about, but I think it's, I think it's good for the field. So is this, have you uh, experienced anything like this before? Were you, were you sort of flattered that your, your paper was dissected by someone who's a pillar in the field? Uh, I don't know if flattered is the right word, but um, I, 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 as you said, I think it's good for the field. Um, and I think there's two reasons that it probably got attention. One is that Paul Nation is an author on the paper. He's you know, widely respected by vocabulary researchers. And second, because it was published in SSLA, which is a, a weighty journal. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, well t- talk, talk me through the timeline here. When did you start working on this paper? Uh, when were you aware that the web paper was coming out? Did you get a sort of a heads up from the journal? And then how long did it take you? Again, you don't need to talk about too much. That I'll talk about more with Jeff, but just to sort of set the timeline, w- what's the time frame we're talking about? When did, when did this all start and how long did it kind of take you to, to write these two papers we're talking about, this first one that's the, the core of this episode and the one where you're the second author and Jeff's the first author. What's the time? Okay. I'll, um, I'll give you a little background information that you, you can't get from, the, from what's in the public. What's in cool. The, what's in, from what's public. Um, so actually, um, Paul Nation and Stuart McLean originally worked on the first paper. I was not part of it. Okay. And they submitted it, I believe, to language testing. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, I, I was a blind reviewer on that paper. I didn't know who the authors were. Uh-huh. And my decision on the paper was, was not to accept it. Um, there were many, many good ideas in it, but it, it needed more more uh, sort of organization, I guess, than anything else. And so anyway, the, it was originally Paul Nation and Stuart McLean. Hmm. And when language testing didn't accept it, both of those guys are very busy with other things. So Stuart contacted me and said, look, we have this paper. We'd like you to come on um, to the paper. You can be first author. You can do with it whatever you want. Um, And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'd be happy to do that. And so that's kind of the backstory to how I got involved. The, the, The core of the paper is already there. And so when I got involved, I looked at what was already there, and I suppose my biggest contribution other than sort of reorganizing things was um, the, the paper starts off, but so, so as, as the title of the paper suggests, it's, it's looking at limitations of size and levels tests, written receptive vocabulary knowledge means vocabulary knowledge that is used in reading, right? Mm. And so... If we're going to say that these tests have limitations, we should probably start off by reviewing what have test makers and validation studies of these tests claimed the tests are capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I added to the project. I I sort of did a background 
digging up all the old validation studies and, and commentary from test makers, and I made an Excel file and just listed all these points. This is what test makers are saying these tests should be able to do. And then I took it another step and says, well, okay, if a test, if we claim a test can do that, what level of precision do we need for a test to be able to do what we say it can do? Mm-hmm. And, and then it just sort of systematically worked through that background to the argument. So what you see in the final paper, the, the final paper starts with three commonly cited uses of size and levels test. There are a lot more than just three, but we narrowed it down to just three because they're ubiquitous. All the test makers say we can use tests for these purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I feel like I went on off on a sidetrack. Have I answered the question? <laughs> no, no, not a sidetrack at all. It's... Um... It's perfect, and I kind of want to. I kind of want to dig into to one of the things you mentioned, and this goes back to how you got into vocabulary testing. If when you were trying to select appropriate test uh, texts for Miyazaki, right? That was that was yes. the impetus, right? And one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, the purpose of a test is trying to distinguish between whether a learner knows 100% of the words or 95 to 99%, 85 to 95%. And something that I didn't know is that um, you mentioned, I guess, Schmidt et al. 2011, the level of comprehension decreases rapidly with each successive 1% loss in coverage. So that's that's huge. Um, so w- when you were looking for that perfect text at Miyazaki – were you looking for the range of 85 to 95%? At that time, what, what was the range that you, you thought was acceptable? And, and has that range changed in your mind over time? Sorry, I might not have been clear. What, what we were looking for in Miyazaki was the perfect, or not perfect, but we were looking for an appropriate test. Ah, so just a test, not a test to choose a text, just a test? Well, well I mean, okay, so we were looking for a test that would give us an accurate picture of our students' vocabulary knowledge so that we could determine whether or not the texts that we were using there mm. were appropriate for our, for our students. And, and I'll give you a little more background on that because it's directly related to this paper we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. So before Phil and I started working together, the, the, the two most popular tests that were available were the vocabulary size test, or the VST, mm-hmm. and the vocabulary levels test, or the VLT. Mm-hmm. And the vocabulary size test um, tries to estimate a learner's overall vocabulary size. And so it was constructed by sampling, ten, randomly sampling 10 words from each 1,000 word band up through the first 14,000 words of English. And when I when I say that I mean um, they sampled from frequency based lists, so ten words from the first one thousand words, ten words from the second one thousand words. Now, the uh, limitation of that test, as Phil and I Phil and I saw it, is that it was based on the word family, mm. which means that if you test a word like uh, conclude, mm-hmm. then an assumption underlying the test is that the learner or the test taker knows all of the members of the conclude word family, conclusion, mm-hmm. concluding, etc. 
And that's something that in our experience as teachers, this was before there was much empirical evidence on this, although there was some, we, we questioned that assumption. Mm. And so really we wanted a test that, was, that didn't make that assumption of the word family. And um, additionally, uh, the learners at MIC certainly did not know anywhere near 14,000 words. They probably knew between one and 3,000 words, all by way of saying that a large portion of the vocabulary size test just wasn't appropriate for those learners. Mm. And in terms of the vocabulary levels test, now that test um, has a level that samples words from the first 2,000 words of English, mm -hmm. which is pretty good for the students at MIC. But then it skips the three and 4,000 band, and then it, it samples words from the 5,000 band of English. So it has some words from the first and second thousand, some test items from the 5,000 word level, some words from the 10,000 word level. And when Phil and I looked at that, in addition to that test being based on the word family, which was similar to the vocabulary size test, another problem with the vocabulary levels test, as we saw it, is that it didn't assess knowledge of those levels, like say the, the 3,000 level, the 4,000 level, which are really what we need to assess at MIC mm. and really many universities in Japan as well. Mm. And, and so you know, we, we struggled with, with trying to develop a test based on, a, uh, okay, I'm going to introduce a couple of, of terms here to your listeners. Sure. So we talked about the word family. Mm -hmm. So if uh, uh, a more conservative way of grouping word forms would be lemma or phlegma. Mm -hmm. And a lemma is if you take a word form like conclude mm -hmm. as a verb, the lemma would include just that head word conclude plus inflectional forms in the same part of speech. So that would be con conclude as a verb, concludes as a mm -hmm. verb, concluded concluding. Very, mm -hmm. very. So if a student correctly answers a test item, assessing knowledge of conclude, we make the assumption they know those related forms, mm -hmm. but only the inflectional forms. So that's, that's what a lemma is. And a phlegma is just a step beyond that. It says if you have a head word that takes on more than one part of speech, for example, let's say uh, track, mm -hmm. then the assumption there is they would, uh, know, they would have knowledge of the head word in both parts of speech and any inflectional forms in both parts of speech. So, for example, track and tracks mm -hmm. as a noun in its plural form, as well as the verb track, tracked, tracking. Mm. Okay, so anyway, so, so we felt probably lemma or phlegma is the way to go to, to, to develop our own test. And so we're looking around for like a word list we could use to make mm -hmm. a test. Mm -hmm. And just about that time was when Brown, Culligan, and Phillips. Phillips is the name of the third author on the new general service list. They came out with their new general service list, which was perfect for, for what we were trying to do. So we built a test based upon their word list because it was phlegma-based. Hmm. So for someone who is testing the students to choose a text, in your opinion, which category should they be looking for? The 100%... 95 to 99%, 85 to 95%. What, what, should, what should someone who's choosing a text look for? This, this, is, this is under the assumption that the test is precise. Right. There's different ways of thinking about it, but 
a good paradigm is Paul Nation's um, Four Strands. Mm -hmm. So Paul Nation has written about how to develop a good language learning program, not just vocabulary, but language in general. And in his paradigm of the Four Strands, a, a language learning program should have approximately equal portions of, and the four strands are um, language-focused learning, mm -hmm. meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, and fluency development. Mm -hmm. And to get to your question, the percentage of words um, that should be known in a text depend upon, depends upon how that text is being used. So, mm. for example, if you're using the text for fluency development, you, uh, you should be using a text where learners know 100% of the words in the text. Mm. Be because the purpose of fluency development is to get better at things you already know. Mm. So, so, I think those four figures that you just quoted to me correspond with the four different strands of a language program. Well, I take it back. So fluency development, you want to basically 99 to 100% of the words in a text should be known. Mm -hmm. Now for meaning focused input, so input, you know, is listening or reading, um, the, what they say is say 98% around in there. 98% mm -hmm. of the tokens should be known. And the reason for that is learner's attention should be on communicating a message when that's in, in that strand of a language program, rather than focused on learning new language. They should be focused on communicating a message. And so if a text is too difficult, they lose that focus. Hmm. And in the third strand of language-focused learning, that is where a text could have somewhere between 85 and 95% known tokens, and that seems to be appropriate, because the focus of that strand is, in fact, on learning elements of the language itself. That is so interesting. Thank you for explaining that because, yeah, reading the paper, I didn't connect the dots in that way about right. how that's really, really interesting. Um, wow. If I was listening, I would go back and listen to that last minute. That was really, really – thank you so much. That really makes a lot of sense. So, in, Hey, Jonathan. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah. To, to cut you off, but, yeah. but so yeah. now, now, that, now that we've talked about that, this is why – if you're using a vocabulary test mm -hmm. to decide whether whether you know a given reading passage is appropriate um, with your students, we're often trying to decide: is this passage appropriate for fluency development, mm -hmm. or is it appropriate for meaning-focused input? Well, the difference in coverage there is just a couple of percentage points. So that's why precision. If if you're trying to figure out you know different materials for your class for different purposes there are small differences in the percentage of tokens known in a text for these different purposes. So in your job now as a professor or in previous jobs, have you taken this knowledge and applied it as far as, you know, all, almost from totally from building a program from scratch, you know, choosing the correct test for each of those four strands that you mentioned and then choosing a, a correct text to apply to a program. Have you have you had the opportunity to do that? Absolutely, sure. Um, that sounds amazing. That sounds really fun. And, and you might you might not be surprised to to hear that it's really really hard to find fluency development materials for many university learners in Japan because the vast majority of university students in Japan have gaps in knowledge of very high frequency words. And so 
even um, like Paul Nation has a series of texts called Reading for Speed and Fluency or Timed Reading for Fluency. Even the lowest level of these texts, a lot of uh, university students in Japan will not know all of the vocabulary in those texts. Hmm. Wow. That is really interesting. I never thought about some of this stuff before. That's what's yeah, no, it's, it is interesting. I agree. I mean, that's the cool part of this podcast is like I can read a paper, sort of think I understand it, and then just get the dots connected. Um, I mean, all right, so let's 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 kind of go towards what you think is a better test, um, more so than the size and the level test. And I think we were talking about in the pre pre show meeting that meaning recall. That's that's what you were saying is is sort of the way to go. That's the that's the most precise test. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, in our paper, um, just to step back for a second, we sure. we highlighted what we think were three limitations to existing size and levels tests. Mm -hmm. And to your point, one of those limitations was the item format, and typically, um, multiple choice or sometimes matching is used in mm -hmm. size and levels tests. And the problem with multiple choice and matching items is that um, in addition to demonstrating actual vocabulary knowledge, students can randomly guess mm. and they can use test strategies to achieve scores that are higher than they would be otherwise. Mm. And so instead of doing that, a meaning recall format is, a t is an item format in which the learner is presented with the target word. Often that target word is in some sort of decontextualized sentence. Mm. And they are asked to provide, often it's like an L1 translation of the word or maybe a paraphrase of the word. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when you test in this way, Compared to multiple choice or matching formats, scores will be lower, and so estimates of mastery or estimates of vocabulary size will be sort of toned down a little bit. Mm. Um, but in addition, and this is an important point, um, the focus of the paper, as I said before, is um, vocabulary tests that are meant for vocabulary knowledge in reading. Yeah? Mm. Right. Um, so when research has looked at, um, if, if you give a group of learners a reading comprehension test, and if you give them a multiple choice or matching test, and if you give them the meaning recall test, well, the meaning recall and reading comprehension scores will correlate more strongly than multiple choice and matching in the, in the reading comprehension scores. That makes sense, yeah. And so that's, that is the evidence that the field is using, or at least that, that, that my colleagues are using to say that that uh, meaning recall is more similar to the level of vocabulary knowledge that's needed um, when reading, when reading. Mm -hmm. So, what, so, so you you are saying now? Can we talk about the the meaning recall format? Like, how would that be done? I guess it's easier. It would be if you had a small class. It could be done during the course of. Uh, I don't know, a class period and use as an examination. Can you talk about how recommendations for teachers 
to conduct meeting recall, whether with one class or a set of classes? And also, is it feasible on a large scale? Okay, um, that's a really good question. And it's um, in Stuart Webb's response to our paper, this was something he brought up as a limitation to meaning recall. And to be fair, he's absolutely right. Um, the problem with meaning recall is when you collect a bunch of uh, translations from students of target words, someone has to mark those, right? Yeah. It's not like a multiple choice test, which you can nowadays, you can just give online and it's automatically marked. So, so it's a fair question. Um, now, there are some, some developments that are really interesting um, that are not that, I want to be careful with my wording here. They're, they're usable now, but I think they will be more so in the future. And that is um, Stuart McLean and maybe some people he's working with have developed um, automatic uh, meaning recall tests that are auto-marked. Mm -hmm. And how that works is um, he has developed a bank of possible correct responses so that when, when you give them the test item and they type in their, their translation, if their translation is in that the bank of possible correct answers, the testing system will automatically mark that. Mm. So it doesn't automatically mark everything, but it, it definitely reduces the load that the that the test giver you know would have to the, the marking load. I see the burden of marking. And what about like if you if you're a teacher and you just have one class and you want to apply this? As a, as a midterm or a final. And would you recommend the teacher sits one-to-one -one or are you, are you recommending they do it in a written format and you check it later? You know, um, it's not simple to answer in a broad way because it depends on a couple of things. Um, if the teacher the strand, the strand idea, what, what are you looking well, for? Well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, look, if the teacher doesn't know the learners L1, they can't really mark a meaning recall test mm -hmm. because if they if, if I give them a word in English and the response is in Japanese if I don't know if that's correct I can't do that as a teacher right um, so that's one factor but if the if the level of the student is high enough in terms of, of a of a classroom situation teachers could ask for um, for l2 responses like sort of a paraphrase of a word but, but really, I, I think the use of meaning recall going forward, it's, it, I, I think a lot of the commentary in our paper, not all of it, but a lot of it for meaning recall pertains to research. If you want to get accurate measurements of vocabulary for research, for the purposes of reading, uh, the evidence at this point seems clear that meaning recall is, is a better measure. Now, we didn't talk about this in the, the, the pre-show meeting, but would you mind talking about your approach to, to building a program and how you go about maybe personally how you teach your classes, having all of this knowledge? Building because a I program. Because like, like I think like, like I said, I feel like I know some of the stuff on the periphery level, but knowing like the in-depth amount of knowledge that you know, like as a professor, I'm assuming you have – somewhat authority over which texts are being chosen and why they're chosen and the steps at which they're chosen or the the format of the curriculum you know what what is being taught and how and why so like for example if you were 
I don't know if you can tell me exactly what's going on at university when you got to prefecture, you don't need to. But for example, if this was an interview and I was interviewing you to head my department, like what steps? And they, and they said, okay, you have free reign. You can do, you, you can start from scratch and we're going to, we're just going to sign you over a check and whatever money you need to build the program. What, what, what steps would you take um, to build a program from scratch? And that, that includes, that includes everything. Like as far as like, would you, would you be the one who trained teachers to do a certain way? Would you encourage teachers to do it their own way? Um, and again, with un, under the frame of the vocabulary testing, and and again, the the connection between tests and texts and the and the four strands of nation. Is that too big a question? Well, that is quite a question. Um, I'll give it a shot. Um, I, I, I've actually been involved in developing a curriculum in in my current job because we had a curricular renewal that just kicked in in 2020. So like the two or three years before that, mm-hmm. um, I was involved in that. And then also in my previous job, I was involved in developing the English curriculum in Miyazaki. So, so I do have some experience I can sort of draw on to answer this question. Um, in both cases, I was the um, coordinator of the language of the English program at the time. And so I, as I said, I, I, I was involved. And I, I guess I'll just touch on a few of the things you asked about. I would certainly, I, I don't think, especially at the university level, you can, you can sort of dictate things like textbooks or, or even teaching approaches because uh, every, uh, all, all teachers do things the way they want to, and I think their autonomy is important to respect. Mm. Um, so. So how we went about it is to try to get input from teachers about things that um, that made sense to them, and, and because I am fam- I personally am familiar with the four strands paradigm, and I think it's valuable in both Miyazaki and in my current job. Um, I, I I'm not sure if I was the impetus, but I would say I, I was involved in sort of presenting this as a possible way to structure their curriculum. And in both cases, at MIC, the four strands... um, Actually, let me just back up a second, because this directly answers your question. So what we did in both both schools is um, we took some time, the the language faculty, to first write a a statement, a, a, a defining statement of what the English or language program was and where its boundaries were. So as an example, the English program in this university includes coursework. It includes a self-access center, or at least portions of it. It includes, uh, it's at least, again, portions of the study abroad program can be considered portions of part of the language program. This is vitally important. First, define who you are and what, where, where, where do you end? So for example, here on this campus, we have some English medium instruction courses that are not part of our English program. Mm. And, and, and when you start setting these things down on paper, a lot of things get clarified. So first we did that. Second, mm. we took some time to write a statement of purpose. What is the purpose of what we're doing? Vitally important. If, if, you, read, if you read books on curricular development, this is common sense, but it sometimes doesn't get done. <laughs> mm. So um, And so and going back to the four strands, both in Miyazaki and here, in drafting a statement of purpose, in both cases, they were centered around the four strands. Now, this doesn't mean that that I wrote this and 
sort of said, let's do this. It was, it was, it was based upon discussion and consensus building with, with faculty members. In fact, here um, at, in, in Niigata, we have five strands, and I'm not going to go into that, but just by way of saying, we listened to input from professors and someone else wanted, uh, a member of faculty wanted to include something else that wasn't in the four strands. So we have a five-strand program here. Um, so, so for curriculum, curricular development, those are the first two steps that, that I think are vitally important. And, and then, and this is something that is a harder sell, I, I think um, once you have done that, and once you have defined very clearly what your uh, curricular goals are concretely, like, like what levels of language proficiency, what level of vocabulary knowledge, et cetera, are we trying to achieve here? Um, I think a really, really important step, step is to set up some form of program-wide assessment so, we can, so that we can see whether or not we're achieving what we're doing. And all of this has almost nothing to do with the paper we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah, but someone like you is someone who at a, at a party or a conference, I'd want to sort of saddle up and ask that question too. Because a lot of people give advice, but it's not backed by theory. And when you really dig down in some of the stuff you're talking about in this paper, it's really the core principles of building a program from my perspective. Um, so I, I, I think it is I, – I, I would disagree. I think it is related to – especially with the knowledge that you know about this stuff. Um, I think you can really apply it to to any program. I, I guess uh, last question. You seem like a very mild-mannered person. How, how do you approach dealing with people um, – who you find don't know what they're talking about, but seem to sort of scream and yell that they know the right answer to everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You seem very diplomatic because uh, you know yeah, a lot, I, right? You know a lot, but I can't imagine you like, you know, screaming or yelling. I know oh, this is the way it's gotta be. Like, you, like look, uh, I, I, I think, look, we all have to sort of be humble. I, I, I think I know what I know, but I, I also realize Someone's going to listen to this podcast and say, no, he's wrong there, he's wrong there, he's wrong there. So I, I think, I, I suppose to answer your question, I, I think it is important that we stay humble, that we keep an open mind, we listen to the different points of view, and hopefully that's done without screaming and yelling. But um, <laughs> in the end, in the end, I, I, I think well, you know, what, what's most persuasive is empirical evidence. So, right. so like, so what we've done here, and particularly, I think, in the the follow-up paper that Jeff Stewart was a lead author on, we we've said, look, this is our point of view. This is the empirical evidence that seems to support it. We acknowledge that more research ought to be done, um, but there isn't much empirical evidence supporting the contrary point of view. At least that's how I see it. <laughs> All right. So, for everyone to follow along. Again, the name of the paper today is Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge. Um, now, if you'd like to read the rebuttal by web, it is, um, it's called Critical Commentary, A Different Perspective on the Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge. <laughs> very, concise, very concise title, A Different Perspective. And then, uh, and then Jeff's uh, as the lead article and Tim's second author, uh, critical commentary, what the research shows about written receptive vocabulary testing, a reply to web. So I would recommend uh, after listening to this, of course, uh, read the paper we're talking about today. I would, I would, I would uh, recommend people read the web article. 
And then, of course, we're going to have the episode with Jeff forthcoming, a reply to him. All very, a lot of exciting things in the, in the vocab sig. A lot, of, a lot of excitement going on. It's a big deal. Jeff was excited. I, I can tell you that. He was, he was excited about all this stuff. Did you hear from Jeff or anyone that there will be a special issue of Studies in Second Language Acquisition coming out around this December that's dedicated entirely to uh, vocabulary, in particular the question of the word family? No. No. What's yeah. going on? Uh, the gist of it is Stuart Webb will be, I mm -hmm. think, I don't know, a host editor or whatever you call it. And so he wrote an initial uh, paper and then there were a number of invited authors um, who were invited to respond to that, one of which was another member of the JALT vocabulary SIG, um, Dale Brown. Hmm. Dale invited some of us to join him on his paper. So there's going to be a number of, of responses to Stuart Webb. And then after all, all of those responses come in, Stuart Webb will get to write sort of the final commentary as well, kind of drawing all the threads together. So I'm really looking forward to... Um, We've already written our, our paper, and Stuart Webb has obviously written his initial paper. But I'm really, I am personally really looking forward to reading all of the commentary that that issue of the journal draws, and then also Stuart Webb's final piece that draws that together. I think it'll be really interesting. Well, if 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 people, if you've piqued people's interest, how can they go about following this this pathway beyond just listening to the, these episodes coming out? Is there a way that they can contact you or, or is there a, that they should follow the SIG or if, 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 if someone's listening to this and they think, Oh, I, this is the path I want to take, or I want to get more involved with the vocabulary. What's the, what's the best way to do that? People are always welcome to contact me. I suppose are you going to have my contact information on the. Sure. I can, if you want, I can put your email on the, on the episode, if you don't mind. I, I don't mind. That, that's one way. It's probably not the best way. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk with people about this stuff. The vocab sig is, um, you, you mentioned earlier today, I don't know if it was on the podcast or before we started in our conversation, but they're a bit hardcore in a really good way. They're, they're hardcore <laughs> in, in that, in that they're, they're, they're research and um, research oriented and oriented towards empiricism. Mm -hmm. um, but but really great, like you're saying, great group of people to get together with after a symposium and just talk for a couple hours about this stuff. Um, so that that's really what I would recommend. If you're in Japan, get involved in the vocab sig at JALT. Um, and of course, you know, as a good start, read the papers that, that you've cited. The, the, that's, that really sums up some of it as a good starting point. All right. Well, uh, again, the, the paper that we discussed today is Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge. Uh, thank you so much, Tim, for coming on Lost in Citations. You're welcome. Thanks to you. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, 
recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.